This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. Welcome to the Craft Beer and Brewing Podcast. This is episode number 258. I'm Jamie Bogner, and joining me is Tom Shellhammer, professor at Oregon State University and a research scientist who does a lot of work in the world of hops. Welcome to the podcast, Tom. Thanks, Jamie. I've quoted your work in the past uh, on numerous occasions or, you know, over the last number of years in the podcast. Uh, it's been fascinating to read some of the work that you're doing to help brewers and help the hop industry understand what is going on with hops. You've got a fantastic new study that explores uh, from us in this research and scientific basis uh, the idea of hop terroir. And that is what we're going to talk about on the podcast today, what uh, the parameters of hop terroir are, what some of those influencing factors are, uh, the things that hop terroir can influence, the things that it can't, um, and trying to get a broader, better understanding of uh, what that means when we use a term like terroir with hops. I'm excited to dive deep into this. Obviously, we're coming into harvest season. Actually, we are in harvest season right now. Correct. And hops are coming off the vines in Oregon and in uh, Yakima now, and so it's exciting. We're going to I'm going to yep. uh, head head out to Yakima in a few more weeks. Uh, you know, just yeah, we got graduate team. students running around the la- the valley right now, just collecting hop samples. We're getting ready to head out to the field for a big big study in uh, in a week as well. So, yep, it's time. Cool. Cool. Uh, so in the spirit of this timing, and because it is the season for that, we are going to going to talk about uh, hop terroir. Before we do that, what if you could chill your beer with a more efficient chiller? The answer, G&D Chillers, new micro-channel condensers. G&D's micro-channel condensers are highly efficient in hotter regions, use a fraction of the refrigerant over traditional chillers, which provides less opportunity for leaks along with lower global warming potential. G&D Chillers engineers are committed to green technology design while developing a more energy-efficient chiller for the brewing industry. Contact G&D Chillers today at gdchillers.com. Also, still emptying those overflowing waste bins full of low fills, crushed and damaged cans, or undercarbonated beer every canning day? It's time to fill like a pro. Email contact us at probrew.com. For more information on ProFill can fillers from ProBrew, ProFill can fillers use rotary true counterpressure gravity filling and seaming technology to run at speeds of 100 to 300 cans per minute with less than 30 parts per billion DO pickup and less than 1% product waste at the filler. Stop wasting perfectly good beer. Email ProBrew at contact us at probrew.com today. ProBrew is a subsidiary of Technoblend, now a ProMock brand. So, Tom, we normally kick off the podcast talking about uh, some background. Talk, talk to me about yours. Uh, what led you down this path of uh, becoming a professor, but then also focusing on so deeply on hops and research around hops? Yeah. So um, I grew up in a family with a college professor. My father was a biological sciences professor, so I suppose I have that in the family. But when I was done with college, I wasn't really thinking I wanted to become a scientist. Um, I did go to graduate school in, in, uh, in food engineering. Actually, it was food science, um, but with a focus on food engineering, and then went to work in the food industry for a while. But as I was working for General Mills, I this kind of nagging thought in my mind around doing more science and kind of exploring the academic route was there. And so I went back to graduate school and worked on a degree in food engineering 
And, uh, and then when I got done, uh, I ended up working at Ohio State University as a food science professor and uh, as a food engineer. And, and it was like during graduate school when I was working on food engineering, uh, Michael Lewis, who was the brewing professor at Davis and was my brewing professor when I was an undergraduate there studying fermentation science, asked me to do some training work for students who were interested in preparing for an international exam offered by the Institute of Brewing. It's now the IB Institute of Brewing and Distilling. And uh, so I was kind of marrying my fermentation science undergraduate uh, background, which was in wine and beer with my food engineering and stuff. And it was like, ah, oh, this is kind of cool. And, and it was kind of a fun side hustle when I was in graduate school and didn't realize that it would like end up being a long-term career for me. So when I got done, I actually worked for a little while with Michael and another fellow, Ashton Lewis, in a small consultancy. And then we did some teaching as well for the university extension program, the master brewers program at Davis, which Michael was running. And, uh, and that was right after graduate school. And then I, I ended up looking for an academic job and getting one at Ohio State. Worked there for four years. And in 2000, the position I'm in now opened up. It's a brand new position at Oregon State University. They had started a fermentation science program in 96, built with inside the food science department. So they've taken existing faculty who had an interest in fermentation, so wine and beer principally, created some coursework, and... Um, and Jim Bruneau, who was the, the owner of the Norwester Brewery at the time, and also is the owner of the Willamette Valley Vineyards, made a gift of some equipment as well as uh, a small endowment to kind of kick off the fermentation science program. He saw that there was a need for training in Oregon for people who wanted to go work in wineries and breweries. And there really wasn't anything you know, anywhere other than Davis or Siebel. So he kind of... that 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 the gift of the equipment and that that um that endowment was like a catalyst for getting things going and after about four four to five years or so of of it being sort of homegrown the state well the, the university approached the state and the state released money for two positions a, a brewing scientist brewing chemist and myself which is the position i'm in and then a, a wine chemist as well and so that was kind of the first positions at OSU that were dedicated just for fermentation uh, on the, both the wine and beer side. And, and since my arrival, we've hired a wine microbiologist and then a brewing microbiologist and a distilling um, professor. And so it kind of expanded out. And then we also have, we've hired a bunch of other staff on the, on the fermentation science. So fermentation science still sits within food science, but it's got a lot more horsepower than it did in 96. And, and um, so anyway, long story short, in 2000, Michael sends me an email says, Hey, there's this position at Oregon state, um, that has your name all over it. Um, you should apply for it. And, um, and I did and, and, uh, competed with the other applicants and they said yes to me. And, and I came out here in 2001 and, um, yeah, and started my career here and, and really it was around teaching students around beer and brewing and we're a, a, a tier one research university, land grant res, uh, research university. So uh, part of my remit is to carry out research that is important to the stakeholders in the state and the nation, which are would just be brewers. And, and also as it's turning out to be now hop growers and, and barley growers. And so, um, you know, when I got here, I was like, okay, what, what, where can I make my mark? And what, what can I start doing work in that's going to be either interesting or fundable? And you know, OSU has had a long history of hop research 
in collaboration with the USDA going back to the 1930s when the USDA created a hot breeding program here in Corvallis. And it's kind of this interesting joint venture. It's like varieties like, like uh, Willamette and Cascade and, um, and, and quite a number of other public varieties have come out of this public breeding program at USDA. And the, the most of the sweat is coming from federal scientists, USDA scientists, but it's using equipment at OSU. So it's the, the land that the, the hop yard on is OSU. And um, and some of the technicians that uh, are supporting this are also OSU. So it's an interesting federal and state kind of mashup. So to be clear, the Cascade was developed by USDA scientists, not OSU scientists. <laughs> but it's done here at OSU. And um, so we had this long history of hop work. And so um, I kind of stuck my toe in the water back in 2001 to do some hop work with uh, the Hop Research Council. And it's just sort of snowballed over 20 years. Uh, I've kind of made a name for myself as a hop scientist. And uh, I do work in other areas as well. I do work in, in barley. I work closely with Pat Hayes on barley breeding projects. And, and um, looking like we're talking about terroir, terroir today, doing terroir on the barley side. But I would say most of my work is is tied in some way with hops, whether it's from the brewing side or more recently with um, hop growing side. That's where the terroir study is going to come from, working closely with hop growers. And so a big part of my my, my daily work is doing research. In fact, my, my appointment at OSU is much larger on research than it is on teaching. I mean, I still teach courses for students um, to learn about brewing and run a continuing education program on the same uh, realm. But the, the research element is like what the university is looking at me to, you know, that's where the heavy lifting comes. Sure. If we look at it from, you know, the last 22 years, 21 years since you've, you've been in this kind of role, I mean, the value, commercial value of the U.S. hop crop is, I don't know, three to 400 percent what it was when you started in this. That, yeah, it's uh, really changed. I think we're yeah. over $600 million a year or so, I think, in uh, last I checked. I, I could be off on that. Somebody fact check me on it. You know, but uh, I mean, it's a humongous increase in the overall value, not, not just volume, but value. Yeah, uh, you know of of the the hop crop, and uh, you know, of course, as this advent of craft beer really took hold, and over the last fifteen years has become an economic and powerful force. The agriculture has been the thing that also supports, inspires, and uh, you know, furthers the success of that. And then working in tandem, of course, that's also driven. I think what you're talking about more need for and demand for. Uh, understanding knowledge and information about these things. And, uh, you know, it's been fascinating to see what you've been able to show so that growers can be more effective at what they do, which is you know, what making uh, agronomically viable hops, growing them in a way that uh, makes sense on the agricultural side, but also makes sense on the flavor side so that they're serving the needs of the, the customers, aka brewers that are that are using the hops that they make. Yeah, you know, in the in the twenty one years that I've been here, um, hops I mean, hops have gone from being kind of a commodity to very much a, a specialty ingredient. I mean, it, it's really interesting to see the evolution of that. We were not talking about um, varietal specific hop beers. I mean, you could sort of predict it was coming because you can see the the increasing sophistication of the craft beer drinker, and it, it that. that that evolution mirrors a lot of what the wine industry saw in the 70s as um, 
I grew up in California, so my dad was kind of a nut, going from just drinking jug red or white wine to being in the wine tasting groups and wanting varietal specific wines and then wanting, not just wanting varietal specific wines, but wanting varietal specific wines from certain regions, from Napa or from Central Coast or France or wherever. And, uh, and so and I could kind of see block. that. Now we're down to block. Oh, exactly. You know, south facing Facing slope slope of a certain clone of Pinot Noir on this block and and this other block. I mean, the price differential that these winemakers can create, you know, this block is $60 a bottle and that block is $120 a bottle. It's like, wow. Okay. That's that's an example of kind of where terroir could potentially go, right? So. Sure, sure. Well, let's talk about what Hop Terroir is and uh, the basis of this study because, you know, we, we throw around that term and I think a lot of people, you know, um, have different ideas of what that means. But before we get into that conversation, are you looking for innovation in your next beverage breakthrough? Think outside the puree box, let your brand stand out with Old Orchard's craft concentrate blends. Even smoothie seltzers can benefit from the extra boost of flavor and color. Old Orchard is based in the greater Grand Rapids, Michigan area, also known as Beer City USA and supplies the craft beverage categories ranging from beer, wine, and cider to seltzer, spirits, and kombucha. To join the core of Old Orchard's brewing community, learn more at oldorchard.com slash brewer. Also, Hey Nano Brewers Fermentus, the obvious choice for beverage fermentation, is soon offering their dry ale and lager yeasts and flexible 100-gram packaging. To learn more about how Fermentus can improve the quality of your fermentation and for the latest on their exciting new product releases, visit fermentus.com. So when we talk about terroir, how do you define that? Tom, and how did you start setting out uh, to devise a study to that might, you know, like what what become those factors that you consider to be terroir, and then how did you set out to to define those and study those? Yeah, so yeah, two really good questions. So first, let's deal with what terroir is, or and some people re- will refer to it as regional identity. Um, it's the the concept that an agricultural product is influenced by the region with which it's grown in or in which it is grown and um and these these characteristics of this product um why they can be influenced by a number of things there are some elements that are very expressive of that place and very unique because of that place and so the the kind of key things like the two main things that people focus on are soil and weather or climate. So climate is basically, you know, weather over a long period. Um, weather is what we experience on a day-to-day basis. So climate, like in a, while we think about climate uh, from like the, the study, we focus on, on weather, like what happened over the, the four month growing season. And then we look at soil as well um, for, I think there's another element of what we call geomorphology. Uh, and we've already just kind of joked about that, like the south facing slope of this you know, vineyard. Um, certainly for where uh, the, the growing space is, the microclimate, uh, in addition to the overall climate and, and weather patterns, but that microclimate will have an influence. And we see this a lot with grapes. So grapes high up on a hill uh, have different weather patterns than those that are down in a valley. There's a lot you know, the cold air settles in the valley. And if it's south facing, it gets more sun than if it's, you know, west facing or north facing. We don't really see the geomorphology. I, I don't really see that as being a big deal in the US because when you look around the US, most of the hop fields are flat. In Germany, there is some slight rolling to them. 
but it's nothing like what you see in terms of where wine grapes are going, and particularly like in Germany, oh my gosh, in the Moselle Valley, they grow on these super steep slopes and very much on the south facing slide because it's really cold um, where these wine grapes are grown. But um, so geomorphology is probably not a deal for uh, hops. I mean, we do know the, 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 um, the altitude uh, that they're grown at, but still it's not, a, not a biggie. So really soil and, and uh, weather, the, um, the plants are very photosensitive. So the, the, the way hops, I mean, hops are perennial plants. Um, the rootstock stays in the ground year after year. And, um, every year the kind of an annual portion emerges and it starts growing and growing and growing. And the, the mechanism that triggers flowering is a increase in night time length. So the, the date, the nighttime length is getting shorter and shorter as we approach solstice. And then once we get past solstice, it's the, the the change in night length. I mean, you can think of it as day length, but it's really triggered by the, the night element. Um, mm. That's then the plant says, "Okay, hey, so we're moving into you know into like summer," and that triggers the sequence of flowering, which then those flowers then turn into cones. And so the latitude of the plant will have a significant influence on day length. So the further north you get, you know, it's really good for hop growing. Um, but you run up against a, an upper bound where you just don't have enough of a growing season. So, you know, 35 to 45 degrees north or south of the equator is kind of the sweet spot. Well, not sweet spot. That's the band, like 45 degrees, which is where Salem Morgan is, is a nice sweet spot. It's where the Hullertau is uh, in, in Germany. So latitude will certainly have an influence on on hop. I, 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 that's my, my intuition on hop um, expression. And then there's these other elements that, like some people will say that this is not part of terroir, and I've heard other people um, argue that it is part of terroir, and that is the the management practices. So we often think of terroir being those regional influences that work um, irrespective of the management practices, but it's hard to decouple that because a grower who is growing hops in a very sandy soil, let's say near a river, um, will need to apply more fertilizer than a grower who is growing, you know, on much more clay soils that are that are, that are less easily drained, have a higher water holding capacity, and might might have more organic matter. So the the fertilizer inputs will be different because the, they're responding to what's in the soil. And the same thing goes for disease and pest resistance. If there is uh, I mean, hop growers are really, at least in Oregon and Washington and Idaho, are battling fungal diseases. So it's they're going to spray, and um, and part of that spraying has to do with where the hops are grown. So if they're grown, it's you know, if there's a particularly hard year, you got lots of humidity. Um, it's going to have it's going to influence um, fungal disease pressure. So we can't really take the management element out of this. So those are kind of the three gross things, right? So we've got soil, we've got weather slash climate, and we've got management practices. And those are the big influences. And, and then there's the variety of the hops, the, the hop variety itself. And, and I guess we've kind of veered off of just what is terroir, but what is terroir to hops. But the hop variety is going to have an influence, as would other agricultural products. They, the, the type of the variety may have uh, maybe either more or less susceptible to these environmental differences. And um, yeah, that's kind of it. So you, you see this expressed in other crops, probably most notably wine grapes. And the U.S. has uh, these AVAs, these American Viticultural Association areas that are um, tied to regions 
that provide unique characteristics. So for instance, Pinot Noir grown in Wyant Valley, uh, there's a Wyant Valley AVA, just like there is a Carneros region AVA down in Southern Napa um, or a Columbia River AVA. And if you grow Pinot Noir in those different areas, they're going to get it's going to be Pinot Noir, but it's but they're going to be different because of those regional influences. We say the same thing with coffee. Um, you see regional identity coffee. We've seen the same thing with cocoa. Um, uh, regional ID um, cocoa, something with tea. We've done some work at OSU um, on dairy. There's there's sort of terroir influences on in, on milk and how that influences cheese production. So it happens in a number of different agricultural products. And so it's not surprising that some growers would say, well, if it's happening in wine grapes and I've got to feel the hops, it's basically right across the street from wine grapes. Is it happening in, in hops? Sure. And that was sort sure. of, that was sort of how the project got kicked off was a, was a grower asking that very question. So it, it's yet, it's a massive problem with all like a multivariate inputs and oh all sorts of things that are influencing the expression of different things. You've got, you know, the potential for different varieties of hops to express these things in different ways. Um, they've, they've got different com- amounts of different compounds that interact with each other to produce the different kinds of things that you can sense and measure. All of these things work on a whole bunch of different axes at all the same, all time. The same so time. Exactly. It's a massive and- problem, but you want to study it. Right. So- and the study, that's a challenge, right? Cause you like, as scientists, we like to have, very balanced and randomized design. So in this case, balancing would be, we'd like to have all different soil types uh, in with all different weather types, right? And we can't get that because the soil is influenced by the weather, right? The soil in Yakima Valley is different than the soil in the Willamette Valley because of the climate and how much rain there is in the Willamette versus how much rain there isn't in the, um, the Yakima Valley. So we don't have a true comparison of let's say Yakima Valley soils uh, in um, in Walnut Valley weather. Although I have heard somebody suggest that you know basically grow plants in very large pots and move them around, and then you, then you can have all soils. And that's I don't know I, I I don't know what the spatial dimension of that would be. So that's one of the challenges. And then you have yeah, it's like all these different things that we're trying to nail down because we want this to be a study looking at the regional influences, not the effect of either the agronomic influences or maturity influences or you know who knows what and so it's it's a, a challenge to measure a lot of things try to control things to as much as we can and um and so yeah that's so how did how did you set the study up i mean knowing that you can't study everything but that taking this step forward yeah it needs to lay a base for future research also totally. um what did you decide to actually study and how did you decide to to study and measure that so uh, we had kind of two parts of the project that we're focused on. One is trying to establish whether there is a regional, uh, whether there's, there are differences, chemistry and sensory differences that we can tie to region. So part of it is measuring chemistry and sensory of hops growing from different regions. And then if there is some difference, can we begin to describe why those differences occur like what are the factors that would drive those differences and so that's taking all this data in the soil weather management space so it's a lot of data collection we had done some preliminary work in 2018 with coleman ag and then we did a much more thorough study in 2019 so we'd had some you know we'd been around the track twice at least and was learning as we as we went 
uh, in 2020, when we did this multi-state project, we went from working with one grower to working with 23 growers. And, um, you know, we're sort of like a, a slight uh, nuisance or annoyance in there, right? They're trying to grow hops and process hops, and we're trying to work with them. And most hop growers are very uh, willing to say, yeah, come on the farm, grab soil samples. Yeah, we can, you can grab hop samples. Um, but we decided to not try to intervene from a um, agronomic perspective. We just said, you just treat your fields the way you normally would. You, you apply the amount of fertilizer you would. Just let us know how much you're applying. You, you spray as you need. Just let us know how many sprays. Um, so we could kind of tally this up at the end and, and, and try to find some uh, differences there. Probably the biggest thing to, to control, and this is probably the area where, where we have the, the it's the most, whatever, I guess not tenuous, but just the, the part that is the, the, the biggest challenge is just maturity. We know from other work that we've done in our lab and work that we continue to do in our lab that harvest maturity has a really significant influence on hop quality. And it's pretty dynamic. And it's in a period of just a few weeks, it goes from being, you know, hops can be vegetative, bell peppery, green, grassy, to all of a sudden, boom, all this citrusy, and then you know you wait a little bit longer, and now they become these onion garlic bombs. And so we'd like to have the hops all at a similar maturity. The other challenge to that, though, is that there's no uniform measurement of maturity. We've got some growers that use tactile senses, uh, that is, they basically you know pick cones and feel them in their hands and and kind of squeeze them between their fingers. Um, look at them visually. We have other growers that do dry matter measurements. The hops dry matter tends to increase as the hops mature on the vine. They'll use a dry matter window. I know other growers that use a combination of dry matter and some chemistry. I know another grower that uses just all chemistry, really, really advanced um, gas chromatography. And uh, and then I know other growers that just say hops are photosensitive. They will we pick every year on this date, give or day, give or take one day. And it's really interesting how like year upon year, they're picking whatever cascade on this day. It's like, you know, the Coleman's pick, they always, you know, pick on whatever. It's like August 18th, they start picking Centennial. And uh, with very few exceptions, it changes. Um, so everybody's got their own sense of when they're going to pick. And I think that was one of the biggest struggles here is that we wanted to try to get some uniform maturity and I would say our dry matter data, while it is variable, is not drastically variable. And we can we can um, correlate some of the dry matter data. Um, but just like staying in this, this hot maturity space for a minute, you might have the same grower who's picking the same variety at two different on two different plots of land, you know, and within a day of each other, because of like this photosensitivity, the plants all seem to be ready. But those plants might actually have fairly different dry matters, right? So if they were going to wait for the, the plant that had the lower dry matter to have higher dry matter, they might wait another week. And that plant might be, from a sensorial perspective, overripe relative to its partner that's grown a few miles away. So that's kind of the evidence of how dry matter is not like the holy grail from uh, maturity. I mean, these are plants within the same row on the same hill. You yeah. might have, you know, this variance in the dry matter. Oh, you just go up and down the column of the, of the plant. Like if you yeah. walk out in a hop field and you pick cones that are like five feet off the ground and pick cones that are maybe 12 feet off the ground and then pick cones that are 20 feet off the ground, you'll find different oil mounts, different chemistries and different dry matters throughout the vertical column of the, of the plant. And so, yeah, it's a relatively 
heterogeneous plant. I mean, it is all maturing, but it's not like every cone on a plant is the same. Um, much like if you go out to a vineyard and look at grapes, you know, they particularly, you know, when they're when they're not quite ripe, but you'll see broad variations in color and whatnot. So that's kind of one of the challenges is dealing with that the heterogeneous nature of that. So we would let the the growers make the call on when they're going to harvest, and it was just a matter of communication that we got out there in front of their harvesters so that we could get our samples out of the field before them. Um, so that for us was it meant in like in 2018, we actually tagged all the plants that we wanted. We needed about 15 strings of mosaic and 20 strings of cascade to get roughly the, the, the quantities of hops that we needed. We we're looking for between 12 and 15 pounds of dried hops to do all the different studies and brewing trials and whatnot and have some backups. So we would go out and hand harvest these, these plants and then bring them to a mobile picker, pick the hops, and then put them in big kiln clock bags. They're like kind of like giant onion bags. And then we'd bring them over to uh, a grower and have them dry it for us. So Coleman Ag would dry all the hops for us in the Willamette Valley and Peralt Farms up in Yakima Valley would dry all the hops. Actually, they would pick for us and, when, and John and Haas, the Golding Farms, would do all the drying. So that was one way to try to control one variable, have have all the pit hops grown all throughout the valley, but have one one person or one one entity picking them and one entity drying them and drying them consistently at the same temperature. That being said, the hops are being, they may be dried with other varieties, right? So it's like a big hop farm's going and we're picking hops from different parts of the valley. Not all the, the Cascade hops were dried in kilns with Cascade, right? There might be, might be some Centennial, there might be some other variety, it might be some Simcoe, because that was in the kiln at the time. But Haas dries all their hops at the same temperature and the same bed depth. So they're essentially getting the same, roughly the same treatment. They, they may be in the kiln a little bit longer, depending upon the, the hops that are being dried with them. 15 pounds of dried hops within the size of an average hop kiln is a, a, yeah. a literal drop in the bucket. In the bucket, exactly. Mm-hmm. So that was one way to try to control things is have the 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 grower, you know, it's they're being dried commercially along with other varieties and then being pelletized. Sure. Why focus on uh, uh, Cascade and Mosaic, Mosaic in right. particular? Yeah, so we focused on Cascade. Well, in order to do the study and get a, a decent data set from a regional perspective, that is lots of different samples across a broad region of both the Willamette and the Yakima Valleys, we needed varieties that were grown in many places. So the candidates would be those top three or four grow- varieties. So Cascade, Citra, Mosaic um, are, are big ones in terms of, of acreage. And so Cascade was a, a good choice because it's it's sort of a heritage variety. Um, it's public. It's grown all over the world. and um, it's got a, a lot of acreage in, in the Northwest. So that was easy to find growers who grow Cascade. The mosaic um, selection came because of work we had done in 2019 with Coleman Ag. We had, we had looked at Simcoe Mosaic and um, Strata. And the mosaic data of the three varieties seemed to show more regional variation than the others. And so like, okay, well, we've got some preliminary data that seems to point to mosaic showing some regional variation. So let's use that as a candidate hop. We know that we could find enough growers to to, to grow um, mosaic on all the different spots of land, not spots of land, but you know, the basic read, well, let's call it the subregions of the Willamette Valley and the Yakima Valley. 
So being having some bias towards wanting to have a result of any kind, you found something <laughs> that might <laughs> that might yeah. uh, express a little more variance. Variation. Now right. these, yeah, they, these, uh, you know, the the hop and oil composition of those are a little bit different from each other, and so you're also then. To, you know, potentially tracking different, uh, you know, compounds within each one of those, um, which might give you what a little more breadth to see if there are certain compounds that get more influenced by terroir than others. Yeah, exactly. So um, it, it's nice to have two varieties that are also different sensorily, right? So the kind of key descriptors for um, Cascade are citrusy, um, maybe piney herbal, um, slightly floral aromas, while the mosaic is very much citrusy, tropical, um, almost, um, it can be sort of stinky, tropical kind of aroma. It can move into, into that onion garlic space as well. So the former cascade is more driven by terpene and terpene alcohol, um, derived aromas. Um, there's not a lot of thiol, free thiol expression in cascade. Well, mosaic is has terpene alcohols, but it's got a strong influence from thiols as well. So it's a more thiol dominant, or free thiol dominant uh, type of variety. So that's where those um, passion fruit, guava, uh, dank, stinky smells come from. So there, that was nice to have two varieties that were different in that regard. It wasn't just you know comparing uh, oranges to tangerines. It was like okay, a little more apples to oranges. So 15 pounds of samples from each of these different locations. How many different farms loca and locations? Yeah, we had, uh, we, you know, was this across each of the states? Yeah, we're targeting um, 10 spots within each state for each variety. So we had 40 samples total in this study, roughly 20 of Cascade and 20 of Mosaic in each of the, of the states. Didn't quite work out that way because like in, when, well, because in 2020, we had this crazy forest fires in, at Labor Day. And so one of the sites was under an evacuation order over in Man Angel. So we just stayed away mm -hmm. from that farm. So we lost one there. But I think we were we were up one um, in Washington. We might have been had like 11 sites there or maybe even 12 sites. It was just a little bit out of balance there. But in the end, we had roughly 10 sites of each. I think the, the 2020 study, we had 39 sites in total. Um, split roughly evenly between Cascade and uh, Mosaic, and again, split roughly equally between the Willamette and the Yakima Valleys. So you had these hop samples then pelletized. What was the, what, what steps did you all take after that? Yeah, so we pelletized the samples, then um, put them in cold storage. Uh, we, we, we evaluate the hops from a chemistry perspective using your standard techniques to look at the hop acid composition and, and moisture content, but then also total oil content and then a range of different oil components using GC. And then we would do uh, hop grind evaluations from a sensory perspective. So we get some sensory data. And with that, we've got then a suite of, of um, data, both sensory and chemistry, that we can then do the terroir study, which is like, okay, we, we do a statistical analysis on them and look like, okay, how do they group? And so the groupings, you can see like, okay, Cascade was different than Mosaic. Okay, they should be. It confirms, yep, they're very different. And then it was interesting to see when we start mashing this data up, we start seeing some state differences, like the, the Cascade in Oregon was different than the Cascade in Washington. 
And the same thing with the Mosaic and, and Oregon and Washington. It wasn't a complete separation, but um, it was, you could see there, there was regional effects. It wasn't like these two data sets were just mapped on top of each other. There was, you know, a little bit of overlap in some spots, but a, a fairly distinct differences. And then from that, you know, we had 40 samples to look at. We're like, oh, this is cool. We're seeing some evidence of this terroir effect. We weren't really in the, the game of trying to brew 40 different beers and analyze those. So we took a subset of these hops. And basically, so within, let's say, the Cascade uh, batch, we, we looked at all 20 samples. And we, we picked um, seven samples. So we basically were three from each state plus one extra there um, to to kind of look at the extremes, shall we say, I wouldn't call it the extremes, but just we were selective of the three or four samples of the hops from the hop grind chemistry data to collect different points on that map, not necessarily on the geographical map, but on the, the chemistry um, uh, sensory map. Right, so if we if hops tended to be high in compounds A, B, and C, and and it was it tended to be you know in, intensely tropical versus one that was more citrusy versus one that was more herbal, we were kind of picking those varieties and advancing those to brewing trials, and we did brewing trials at the OSU Research Brewery, and these were like one and a half to two hectoliter um, brewing trials, so they're yeah they're, they're it's made in a research brewery, not like in carboys, and then those beers get processed and single hop IPAs. So it's, you know, six and a half percent beer, like roughly two pounds per barrel of dry hopping and some late hop addition, kettle hop addition, all of the same hop variety. And then uh, we would then do um, the sensory analysis on those beers to see whether these differences that were seen on the chemistry side and sensory side of the hops translated to differences in the beers. And the answer along the way was, yes, there's, there's regional associated differences in the chemistry and sensory and we could see differences in the beers that were statistically different they weren't necessarily the same things that we're seeing in the the chemistry side but we are seeing um you know clustering of different groups of flavors that are coming from the hops in the the terroir study I want to unpack that a little bit more because I think that's the fascinating piece here that, uh, and being able to also understand what you think you're going to get looking at a pure chemical analysis and a analysis of the grind and then going through the practical application of that through the brewing process to, you know, again, of course, the, the topic of survivables is a very hot one these days yep. to also see, you know, what makes it through that, you know, to actually express some idea of terroir, those or another additional layer. I want to talk about that for a sec, but first with 20 years of innovation and experience, Brumation specializes in electric steam and direct fire brew houses, complete cellar solutions and automated controls for the craft brewing industry from one half barrel to 30 barrel systems. Brumation puts you in control to design a brewery that fits your needs and brewing style. Whether you're starting a new brewery, upgrading your cellar or just need some parts to keep you up and running, Brumation has you covered. Visit them at brumation.com slash cbbpod to get started. Also, Arrived, mobile point of sale powers places with personality. Arrived is streamlining business operations for the makers of craft with an all-in-one solution that was built with love. 
by hospitality professionals. No contracts, no monthly fees make Arrived a no-brainer for your craft business. Go to Arrived.com forward slash CBB to set up a free customized demo. That's Arrived, A-R-R-Y-V-E-D.com forward slash CBB. A different kind of POS has arrived. So you had some hypotheses or hypotheses then coming out of the chemical analysis and grind, and then uh, you know how did that reflect in the those finished beers? Um, what did you see making you know, that you suspect had more impact, and how do you then track all that all the way back to the terroir? Um, you know, and have you been able to figure out, or at least you know, again, you don't, you can't definitively say, but then do you have some guesses or some inklings that are leading you into new research directions as to what some of those terroir factors may have actually been that can be influencing those things that do actually make it into the beer? That's another huge question. Sorry. Yeah, exactly. No, it's it's a biggie. So, yeah. So the, um, so from the hop grind perspective and the hop chemistry perspective, we can see differences, pretty clear regionally associated differences. And the, those differences become less clear, but there's still differences when we move them into beer. And it's not like the data set just maps from what we see in the chemistry space into the, or the hop grind space into the beer space. And I think that's because you point out like the whole issue of survivables that we haven't looked at like precursors. So like from Mosaic, which has got a lot of, well, and probably even more so Cascade, a lot of bound thiols. We didn't track bound thiol concentration, nor did we track three thiol concentrations. This is so dang expensive to to measure thiols in under 40 samples that we would have, we could have spent the whole budget just measuring thiols. You don't have equipment that can measure thiols in parts per trillion? Trillion, right. I know. I know. Soon, soon, hopefully soon, but yeah, not right now. No, we rely on Nisios over in France to do that for us, and um, the so we're not seeing the full picture from the chemistry perspective. We're seeing a lot, but not the full picture, and um, and so and that's kind of part of what I mean makes beer interesting and and hoppy beer interesting is that um the beer the hoppy flavors that you find in beer are certainly evocative of hops you can you can smell the hops and you can smell the beer but they're not the exact same thing it's not like we're just making hop tea and so there are these biotransformations we've got you know stripping effects and and solubility issues and and so it's it's still relatively complex complex to be able to make some sort of predictions um the so we're seeing these differences in the beer space and it's confirming, okay, there are these regional differences. We are hanging our hat more on the chemistry and, and um, sensory of the hops right now, because that's a more robust data set than just having seven samples of cascade or seven samples of mosaic. The, the, the beer part is really more like kind of saying, okay, the difference that we see in the chemistry doesn't just get washed away when we brew with these beers. So that's kind of validating. Um, the other thing, though, to keep in mind is that um, we really need multiple years of work to sort of validate whether the differences that we saw in 2020 are the same in 2021 and 2022 and 2023. We, in fact, have done the 2021. Um, we've collected data in 2021. So we're digging into that right now to kind of get a sense on how much similarity is there, how much do these things persist. 
So I would say I would treat the the data that we we have as like an interesting proof of concept that these regional differences do exist, um, and you know the the like the questions that come up immediately is like okay well 2020 had this huge forest fires you know how much did the forest fire influence the the mosaic we we had already harvested the cascade by then but the the um, mosaic certainly could have been influenced uh same thing in 2021 there was a huge wind event in yakima valley blew down a bunch of of trellises and had i mean just the whole valley was had a day and a half of just intense winds and that had an influence on some of the chemistry as well so we have haven't had like normal years for quite a number of years so that's in order to kind of get a sense on whether these differences we're seeing really persist we need to do this for multiple years in order to get a sense whether they do persist but it's enough we have enough data to, to say at least okay there are differences it's not like after one year we did this and we're like ah, everything smells the same everything looks the same we're, we're not there and when you start looking at it over multiple years, you also get to see, yeah, just how much variance within a single sample from a single field there yes. is based on just the the patterns of weather that also occur within that or, you know, whatever the variance in the brand of fertilizer that they may have been using that, you know, what, yeah, what, exactly. all of those. Yeah, some of the things that we, we um, like going forward, things that we would do differently um, are things that we haven't. Um, picked up, we haven't really yet, yet talked about like the correlations um, or the associations, but like irrigation, that's one thing after that, we didn't ever measure irrigation amount. And it was like in one of the papers we submitted, someone said, Hey, how much water are these getting? You're, you're talking about rainfall, but these are irrigated, this irrigated agriculture. Yeah. It's interesting to know how much rainfall you're getting in these different regions, but how much total water are you putting on the plants? I'm like, oh, okay. And we, we have some of that data, but it's incomplete. Um, so, um, Water sources for both are probably I mean, reservoirs. Exactly. Know. They're different, right? I mean, it's kind of like, you know, the, the water for Yakima is coming out of that, uh, just the watershed to the east, actually to the west. And so it's a lot of it's coming from the Yakima River. Um, and in here in the Willamette Valley, a lot of it's from the Willamette River, but there's also aquifers that people are drawing from as well. So yeah, water quality could be different. One of the things we did in 2020 is we, well, so this kind of transition into like trying to make these associations. We have all this chemistry data on um, the soil. So we did a soil cores and looked at soil within six inches of the surface. That would be called surface soil. And then we looked at soil five feet from the top. So sub um, surface soil measurements. And, and we, we know the sand, clay, silt composition. We know the organic matter. Uh, we sent soil samples out to have all kinds of uh, analyses done. Um, pH and cation exchange capacity and um, all these different mineral levels and and uh, so minerals like macro minerals like you know nitrogen phosphorus potassium but also micronutrients or nutrient minerals like iron copper boron um, zinc these kind of things we've got all kinds of weather data we have 30-year climate data we have solar radiation data cloud cover data then uh, we have all the sprays and not so much the type of sprays, but the frequency of sprays. We use the frequency of sprays to get us an idea of how much disease pressure there is on different fields. And uh, back to that soil data, we were also taking samples and having soil microbiome analysis. So we've we've characterized this the the at least at a um, a genus level the different organisms that are in the soil because there's some belief that um, the the sort of plant microbiome 
uh, relationship has an influence on its properties. Kind of like you know you've heard about the human gut microbiome and how like sure. gut microflora might actually have influences on like cognitive stuff. Like your you know some diseases you have. Um, and we're not talking about like gut related diseases. We're talking about like brain related diseases. And so there's some talk within the like the wine terroir space that some of the the terroir effects may be a function of the microbiome, the sort, the kind of the plant um, microbe interaction because it influences nutrient uptake at the roots. So we have that data. Um, we're still unpacking that. Um, we've got a lot of the soil and weather data unpacked. We have some initial correlations, and as you might expect, both soil and weather are having an influence. It seems, based upon the, the the data that we have so far, that soil seems to have a bigger influence than than weather. And that may be in part because within, like if you just look within the Willamette Valley, the weather differences, I mean, the climate is all basically the same in the, in the Willamette Valley. There are regional weather differences, like for instance, in the southern part of the valley, at least not the valley, but the, the hop growing region, um, there is this, what the wine grape growers refer to as the Van Duzer effect. So this is Van Duzer corridor where it's kind of a, a notch split in the, in the coast range. And it allows a lot of coastal breezes to come in from, uh, you know, during the summer. So it's foggy and cold on the coast. It's hot inland. So it, there's this kind of local low pressure gradient that draws coastal breezes into the valley and they come blowing through this. And yeah, in Corvallis and most summer nights, it's windy and cold here because these coastal breezes are coming in. And as you get further east in the valley or you get further north up by um, St. Paul, while there is this diurnal effect, it's not as extreme as you would see down in uh, the southern part of that growing region. So that happens. But overall, the total rainfalls are not that different. The total highs and average highs and average lows between, let's say, Independence, Oregon and St. Paul, Oregon are not that different. But the soils are. And so it's not then surprising that from a statistical perspective, we're seeing bigger swings in the data related to soils than we are with weather because the weather variances are <clears throat> on a much more smaller scale. Certainly between Yakima and and uh, Wild Valley, okay, those are very different from a, right. um, a climate. You know, so the eastern side of the, of the Cascade is high desert. It's dry, um, much less rainfall, um, much less um, cloud cover. So it tends to be colder winters, hotter summers, drier overall and tend to be a little bit more windier than in the um, Wyoming Valley, which is more temperate, shall we say, um, much more wetter. So those are, you know, gross differences that you see between the two valleys. Within each, within each area, like how much variance would, you know, and I, I know I am not going to be able to, you know, I don't have the background to understand what the soil difference might be, but, you know, how much you know, for a, for a layperson, you know, how different could those soils be from different parts of oh. the Willamette Valley? Yeah, yeah. And how how different than, you know, what's that kind of range even within, say, just Oregon samples? You know, because naturally you're looking at averages in order to draw some bigger idea of sure. this, but there are always outliers in any data set. You measure, you know, that kind of central trend line, you know, not just – you know, you know, those outliers, but there are still those outliers, those pieces that, uh, that show that there's even significant difference within a, a certain environment. Right. So the, the cool thing about this project is that I 
I'm not at all a soil chemist, but but it, it got me ex, you know interested in soil and how soils are formed and and like the Willamette Valley soils and the Aqua Valley soils for that matter. The soils we just focus on the Willamette Valley. The soils that we see in the Willamette Valley were formed by this huge uh, flood. If you've seen the movie Ice Age, you know the kids' movie, like the the big ice dam um, that that breaks apart and creates this huge flood. That's, a, that's essentially what happened. Uh, about 40,000 years ago or so. Actually, it happened repetitively for quite an, uh, many years. Uh, and we're talking like, you know, over different millennia. Um, but these, we'd get, the, during the Ice Age, we'd have these huge ice dams build up in the area around um, Western Montana. And they would eventually break loose and we'd have this like, you know, giant wall, like hundreds of feet tall wall of water emptying into um what is heading westward into parts of what is now the aqua valley and then depositing all this this silty soil into what is now the willamette valley and those are referred to as the missoula flood silts or missoula flood deposits and that's what creates the kind of the basis of all the soil in the Willamette valley superimposed or within that you have all this um because it's so wet here you have all this alluvial soil so you got water runoff from snow melt and whatnot that is carving um, paths through the soil in in the valley and creating all this river alluvium so that the soils tend to be more um the alluvial soils tend to be more granular have higher sand um less silt although you can find some alluvial soils that they have a lot of clay but most of them tend to be much more sandy and so those are kind of the two gross types of soils. I think in the study, we probably, I should, I should count it up, be able to say it off the top of my head, but probably in, in the Willamette Valley, probably 10 to 12 different soil types. But the gross classifications of those would be different types of alluvial soils and different types of these glacial deposits or the glacial flood deposits. And what the growers in the valley loosely refer to that is river bottom soil and terrace soil. So if you're like in Salem or Kaiser and you're driving through like along River Road or French Prairie Road, you'll be going by um, hot fields. And then every once in a while, you'll kind of drive down off of this terrace down next to the river. And there's there's like a good 75 feet difference in elevation and so when you're down below that you're clearly in the river the area where the river has carved itself through the, the valley and the growers talking to them they know that the hops grow differently on river bottom soil than they do on the terrace soil so they're already knowing that there's some some differences there and so we're seeing that we're seeing you know some big differences related to soil you know basics um gross morphological differences in the soil because of where um where they are and these are going to be within you know you could have two fields within a quarter mile of each other, one up on the terrace and one down on the river bottom soil. Same grower, same variety. So you've got the same management philosophy, but two very different types of soils that create, they don't create very different um, hops as, as far as we can tell yet, but they do create, they have an influence on, on hop quality. Sure. I'm not sure, did I answer your question about? Yeah, uh, yeah. Okay. I want to let's I want to zoom out and talk about that kind of sensory impact and some of the you know the broader characters that uh, in that sensory testing 
you know, that you found reflected and, uh, you know, before we, uh, before we finish up here, talk sure. to me a little bit about that. Like what, what ended up being the kind of net effect that you were seeing and the kind of broader strokes of difference amongst the different terroirs that, uh, that you looked at in terms of measurable, but also like sensorially, uh, uh apparent, uh, differences in these yeah. things. So the, one of the things that we we're trying to do, well, the kind of core thing we're trying to do with the, the study is look at these qualitative differences in soil. I mean, I'm sorry, in, in hop qualities. Um, but we weren't shooting for, okay, who grows the best hops, who grows the worst hops. It's kind right, of that right. thing to, to keep in mind that with terroir, it's not about, okay, this region is good, this region is bad, or the hops you know of this nature are good and bad. It's we're looking at, you know, from our sensory uh, uh, methodology, um, we're using this approach called check all that apply, which is looking at the frequency with which a panel identifies a particular attribute being present in a particular hop or a beer. So we're not even scaling the intensity of citrus. It's just like citrus is on the ballot. And if 80% of the panel says this sample has citrus, it's a pretty important descriptor for that that sample versus another sample in which let's say 60% of the people says it has citrus. It doesn't mean the one that has lower citrus is devoid of citrus. It just means it has less citrus and it has more of something else, right? So we're seeing these these differences. So some, some um Hop samples would have more citrus or more tropical. Others were more herbal. Um, some tended to be more floral. Some did, tended to just be lower in aroma in general. So their scores in general were, were reduced. But I would say we're not at a point yet to, to characterize regions or subregions as, okay, this region, um, I can say, you know, is going to be the, the tropical region of the Willamette Valley for growing mosaic. We're not we're not at that point yet, and I'm hesitant to go there because you know that I don't want people to run with that. Um, that kind of gets back to that we need to do this for a few more years uh, to get a sense on okay what what are some gross differences between let's just say Willamette Valley and the Yakima Valley because I think that's an easier um, one to approach. Um, back to your your question of scale of differences. One of the things that we did see though is that. The variation between these two regions um, were as large as the variation between the two hop varieties, right? So if we're going to look at the chemistry of the hop varieties, and you got these, you, you look at mosaic and cascade together on um, on a PCA biplot, you see they're spread out, and then when you start looking at the differences in these hops as they're associated with the different regions almost of the same order of magnitude, right? So that's to, to give you some scale that, that you could find different hops, the same hop variety grown in, let's say, one part of the Yakima Valley and another hop grown in a different part of the Willamette Valley. And the differences in the qualitative nature and chemistry of those hops would be of the same magnitude as the differences on average of Cascade versus Mosaic, right? So they're, 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 they're relatively big. It doesn't mean that the, that the sample that was grown you know, in one place is devoid of, of, of um, cascade character. It's just that cascade character or mosaic character in all its nuances. Well, maybe it's not that nuanced, right? It's, there are some pretty broad differences. And I think this is partly why brewers go to hop selection is because not all mosaic is going to taste like mosaic or smell like mosaic. So they want to know what it is. And that's kind of where the, the, the goal of the project is, right? Is to, to be able to help growers and brewers with their selection. If they want variation, it could be nice if at some point you could say, we know in general 
the lower valley of the Yakima Valley tends to, to produce hops that tend to be more expressive of these qualities, while you know the St. Paul region of the Willamette Valley, the hops tend to be more expressive of these varieties, or these characteristics, right? That's kind of where this could ultimately go. It's fascinating. I think it speaks to something that we all kind of had an inkling toward, you know, that uh, the difference between a Sauvignon Blanc grape grown in Marlborough, New Zealand, and, yep. you know, grown in, uh, you know, Sonoma County uh, I, I might be much more significant than the difference between Sauvignon Blanc and Pinot Gris grown in one of those. You know, to, like, you know, I think you're right. That's, I think, that, you know, exactly. but it also yep. it raises that question, like, is looking at solely at hop variety, uh, you know, the way that we should be approaching these things as brewers or as, you know, maybe you want to look at something beyond that, that, uh, you know, yeah, that, I think, no, yeah. And then of I course brewers are, yeah. are building hops. They're, 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 it's kind of like a color palette metaphor, right? They're looking for creating beers using blends of hops that create flavors that work in a certain space. It's, it's definitely not unidimensional. It's like, okay, we want, if you want a hazy, juicy IPA, you tend to find hops that can give you more of this juicy quality that are, you know, citrusy, tropical flavors, as opposed to other varieties of hops that tend to be more herbal or spicy or floral. And what brewers will do is use varietal as like a surrogate to understand what they think they're going to be getting. And um, as opposed to just like, here's the color palette for that particular hop. Given that, there's many different shades of those colors within Cascade or Mosaic or whatever. And so it's, it's helpful. Um, and certainly this is why some you know, brewers that are very focused on hop aroma will go to selection and, and identify lots of, of hops that fit the, let's call it the aroma palette or aroma color palette that they're, that they're seeking to create, to, to build fun and interesting sure. beers. Well, I can't wait to see what uh, future years of this research show and suggest, you know, in the you know, to see uh, if this starts holding true at the same kind of level of significance across multiple years with different weather and uh, yeah. you know, all the other concerns that weigh across this. Are there, uh, in addition to this, are there any other research projects that uh, you're working on that, uh, you know, have uh, maybe of interest to our audience of oh, brewers yeah. out there? I mean, I think a lot of things. We 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 continue to to work in the hop enzyme space. You know, the hop hop creep enzyme, and and yeah. basically all this terroir stuff we do. We're always measuring hop enzymes as well to see. Okay, can we get some further insight on hop enzymes? I think that's been something that I think brewers are interested in. We're continuing to do kilning work, looking at how hop kilning influences hop flavor, and um, and and ways to make hop kilning and hop growing more sustainable. Uh, that is, there there may be ways that Growers could actually reduce the amount of inputs from a kilning and you know just carbon inputs, and create hops that um, have that, that are great that you know that, that smell wonderful and and um, are in no way defective. Um, we're starting to, to play in the smoke space a little bit. We're doing some preliminary work on smoke, and we'll probably be doing smoke research for the next few years, looking at how smoke influences hops. So that's kind of a stay tuned. Although we'll, we'll have some stuff coming out in the new year on some initial smoke work. Yeah, there's a kind of, oh, actually, and then we're doing a fair amount of work on, on biotransformation. So we're working on looking at how yeast are, are modifying, particularly the thiol nature of hops. So we got lots more stuff to talk about, Jamie, on another time. 
I can't wait, and I'm going to hold you to that because uh, this is all fascinating work, and it's great to see the um, the kind of scientific and data underpinnings to the things that brewers are also learning anecdotally through their practice. And I think looking at it from both of these perspectives can be really valuable as folks figure out how to use all these broader, newer, exciting tools, ingredients, and everything out yeast and uh, processes that we have to, to yep. make delicious beer. Mm-hmm. I agree. It's a fun place to, to, to be playing in scientifically. Well, that's a great way, great place to bring this to a close. For nearly 30 years, G&D Chillers has set the mark for quality equipment you can rely on. Fill like a pro with Pro-Fill can fillers from ProBrew. Think outside the puree box with Old Orchard's Craft Concentrate Blends. Fermentus now offers dry ale and lager yeast in flexible 100-gram packaging. Brewmation puts you in control to design a brewery that fits your needs and brewing style. An arrived mobile point of sale powers places with personality. Of course, go to beerandbrewing.com, click on that subscribe button, let us know this content matters to you. Tom, if people want to learn more about your work at uh, Oregon State and what you're doing in the research world, um, where can they stay in touch with what you're doing? Yeah, so uh, I, I, I push some stuff out to Twitter and I'll push some stuff out to LinkedIn as well. Um, you can, all the, my, my most, well, all my research sits on uh, an OSU webpage that's kind of dynamically updated. So if you just Google Tom Deschel, I mean, Tom Deschel, but Tom Schellheimer at Oregon State, you'll go to my page and you can find my publications. So those are kind of the three areas. Um, yeah, so it's follow me on Twitter and uh, LinkedIn. So, Well, I can't wait to talk soon about the next project that you're working on and uh, dig into this deeper. But thank you for joining me and talking about Hopterware. Uh, cheers, Tom. Yeah, thanks, Jamie. Look forward to the next time. This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at craftbeerbrew.